One of the most important teachings of the Buddha is a teaching on the nature of mind. And in this particular discourse, the Buddha said that the mind is inherently radiant and pure, and it's clouded by visiting defilements. That the mind is by its nature radiant, pure, clear, unobstructed. When we hear a sound, it's very simple. A sound appears and is known. Or a breath appears, or a sensation appears, or a thought appears and they're known quite easily, quite simply. There's no problem. We can begin to get a sense of the empty, clear nature of the mind, like space. The question is, what obscures this natural clarity of mind? What is it that clouds it? Why don't we live in this natural ease of mind? The major obscuring forces of this natural clarity are called afflictive emotions. And they're called afflictive emotions because these are the mind states that afflict us, that cause us suffering, that torment us, that when we don't understand them with wisdom, when we don't have insight into their nature, into how they're working, they cause suffering for ourselves, suffering for other people. We can see it very clearly at work in the world, the force of these afflictive states. And when we look about at the state or the condition of the world, why is there so much avoidable suffering? You know, there's hunger and there's injustice and there's exploitation and there's violence. It's the playing out of these forces of greed, of fear, of hatred. It's not difficult to see how these are working in the world. But perhaps a more important realization is to understand that these same forces these same afflictive emotions are at work within ourselves. So this is a very big step. In case you're not sure what <coughs> afflictive emotions actually are, the Buddha, in one of the many lists, just enumerated some of them. This is by no means an exhaustive list. So he's asking, and what monks are defilements of mind? Covetousness and greed, ill will, anger, hostility, denigration of others, envy, jealousy, hypocrisy, fraud, obstinacy, conceit, arrogance, vanity, these, O oh monks, are defilements of mind. This is the short list. 
So these estates, these and many others, are the ones that are arising within us and affecting our own lives, affecting the lives of people around us. The question is, can we learn to see them, to understand them, so that we can be with them in a way in which the mind is free, rather than in bondage. <clears throat> the first and fundamental step in working with these afflictive emotions, mind states that cause suffering, is that of acknowledgement, <clears throat> acceptance, and recognition. If we're not aware that they're there, and if we're not accepting of them. So there's no way to actually be feeling them with freedom. And we use the word acceptance. We need to be very clear in ourselves and our experience about what this means. What does it mean to be accepting of an unskillful mind state, of an afflictive emotion? It doesn't mean justifying it, and it doesn't mean wallowing in it, getting lost in it. It doesn't mean justifying it to ourselves. Rather, it's the quality of open recognition that this is the state that's present. This is what's actually happening now. Here, acceptance really is another word for mindfulness. This is part of a short poem by Rilke. And it points to the beauty and the necessity of opening with acceptance to the whole range of what arises within us. He wrote, I want to be with those who know secret things or else alone. I want to unfold. I don't want to stay folded anywhere because where I am folded, there I am a lie. So our practice is really a practice of unfolding. Unfolding all those corners within ourselves. If we can't be accepting, if we can't be open to the afflictive emotions as they arise, we also cannot be free. But as we begin to do this, it's really quite a disagreeable task. You know, we begin to see our shadow side. Because we begin to see pride and jealousy and envy and hatred and fear and all those things that are not nice to look at. They're difficult, they're painful. And what happens is we begin to see these qualities in ourselves and very often we then to begin to judge ourselves for having these states arise. So that makes us feel even worse. And we go around in this cycle of seeing the unskillful things, the unwholesome parts of ourselves, then we judge it, then we feel worse, and we're in this cycle of greater and greater affliction. 
Sometimes it feels like we're drowning in this morass and we don't actually see a way out of it all. So how can we illuminate the shadow side? How can we illuminate our own shadow? Even when we have the willingness, we have the intent, we have the interest to open, we want to see, we want to unfold, still there are obstacles which arise in this process for us. It's not an easy task to do. A necessary aspect of acceptance is that we clearly recognize what's present. And yet this clear recognition is sometimes not obvious. Emotions are difficult to observe accurately and precisely. Now most of the other objects of our awareness are quite clearly delimited. There's a sound, a sensation, even a thought. It has quite a clear beginning, middle, and end, even if we're not picking it up in the moment. But an emotion is much more amorphous. It's not some tangible thing that we can point to and say, yes, I see you, there it is. It's not of that nature. In order to be accepting and clearly recognizing the emotions that are there, we need a different strategy. It's not trying to pinpoint the experience because it doesn't work. What we need to do is to step back, to open up. It's as if we ask ourselves the question, okay, what's happening here? What's arising in my experience? It's one of being very receptive, not an active uh, looking. The power of this move of stepping back, opening up, asking the question, what's happening, is that it allows us to frame any kind of experience, any kind of emotion or mental state very clearly, even when the emotion itself is confusing. Maybe there's a lot of confusion in the mind. Maybe there's a lot of chaos or a lot of turmoil. If we're trying to pinpoint it from inside, we really get thrown, thrown about by it. But as we're in this state of turmoil, of confusion, of chaos, if we can settle back, ask ourselves, what's happening? Oh, chaos is happening. Okay, so it's like we make a big picture frame around chaos. We're mindful of that whole state. We begin to clearly recognize it and to accept what's really there. There's so many experiences you know, of, of this. We've told many Asia stories over the years and probably the predominant aspect of our experience there which we've regaled you with is the incredible amount of noise you know, in most of the monasteries that we've practiced at. And for a long time, the construction noise and loudspeaker noise, and for a long time while I was there, there was this 
um, underlying unease in my mind. I was kind of, you know, an inner grumble about it all. Until one day in struggling with this feeling but not actually recognizing it, I step back, I said, what's going on here? Why am I in such a state of unease with this? And I saw that there was just this mood or emotion of the complaining mind. That in the background of rising, falling and everything else, the mind was just complaining about all this noise. As soon as I saw it, as soon as I could frame, oh, that's the complaining mind. In that moment of recognition, of acceptance, it ceased to be a problem. Clear recognition is the key to acceptance. Often we don't recognize things clearly because we're misperceiving. It seems to be one thing and it's actually another. I'll just give you one example of this, although there are many. One time on a self-retreat, I was in this very strong emotion and I was noting sadness, 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 sadness. And I really felt caught in this feeling for quite a long period of time. And it went on for so long it prompted a further investigation because I really felt caught, I felt stuck in it in some way. So at a certain point I just stepped back, I looked more carefully and I saw that it wasn't sadness. It was unhappiness. And they're close but they're not the same feeling. As soon as I saw clearly what it was, as soon as my mind was aligned properly, that allowed for the acceptance and the whole thing opened up. As long as I was misperceiving it, it's as if the attention in some way was misaligned, it was slightly off-center, and so could not actually be accepting, because I wasn't seeing clearly or accurately. So sometimes if you feel stuck in a certain feeling, check out if your recognition, recognition of it is accurate or not. Sometimes we don't recognize what's present, not because we're misperceiving, but we're not seeing the totality of what's going on. Because very often emotions don't come singly. They come as a constellation of feelings. And just a couple of examples of this. We might be feeling anger, for example, and recognizing it clearly, noting it. Anger, anger, anger. But still somehow we're lost in it, we're caught in it. I've noticed often with a feeling like anger or others, there are sometimes underground emotions that keep feeding it like a spring. And one of the big ones behind anger could be or might be the feeling of self-righteousness, which I've certainly noticed in those situations. You know, we're angry about something and underneath is that, well, I'm right. You know, and that feeling, if it's unacknowledged, if we're not seeing it, keeps fueling the anger. It's like the spring underground. Or it might be the feeling of hurt 
underneath the anger. I had one experience, uh, this was a few years ago. I had this history with, with really a good friend and over many, many years, but we had been going through a difficult time together and periodically sort of I'd get a communication that felt like an attack of some kind. And I, from my point of view, it was unprovoked. But it was this, this periodic uh, communiques. So I was going on retreat, and just before I went, there, one of these happened. So naturally, as I was sitting, this came up in my mind a lot. And I'm sitting, I'm getting the range from annoyance to... Uh, quite strong anger. And I'm noting and noting and noting. It didn't make a dent. So th these situations, for me, they provoke a lot of interest. It's like when I'm suffering, I have a strong interest to find out what is going on here. I don't know about you, but I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I really want to understand how am I getting caught? You know, what's, what's the hook here? And so I'm noting the anger, which I saw clearly, but I knew that there was something else there that I was not open to, not acknowledging. As I looked more closely, I realized that every time thoughts of this situation arose, before the anger was this feeling or this sense of being attacked. But I wasn't acknowledging that. I didn't notice that. And because it was unnoticed, it just rebounded into anger. As soon as I noticed that and could be mindful of that, the thought came you know, of the situation. There was this sense, oh, here's another attack. I noticed that. It didn't even lead to the anger at that point. It just came out of a clear recognition of a fuller picture. You might investigate feelings of jealousy. You know, if they're coming up, what's that about and what's underneath it? Is this something fueling it? Is it maybe a feeling of loss or a feeling of abandonment? The same with grief. What's underneath it? Is there another feeling that's not being acknowledged? It's not that necessarily, as soon as we see and clearly recognize, it's not always the case that the emotion in the moment dissolves, although it might. But if we can be truly accepting, which comes from clear recognition, then we're with the feeling, with the emotion, in a much more spacious and open way. There's not that feeling of being caught or being contracted in it. Sometimes we misperceive what's there. Sometimes we're not seeing the full constellation of what's there. Sometimes we're not accepting of emotions because they're too painful. You know, just as this, there's a whole range of painful physical feelings, there are many mind states, many feelings 
that really are unpleasant, very painful to feel. And often because of that, we don't allow ourselves to open to them. Fear, shame, anxiety, embarrassment, unworthiness. For each of us it might be different. But these are difficult ones to allow ourselves to feel. I'll just tell you one story from, this is about five or six years ago. For a long time, since the center was started, um, Sharon and I lived in the building for about 13 years. And we just had a room and actually changed rooms a lot. And then about five or six years ago, um, through some great generosity, we had the opportunity to build a house, which is next door. And it was just a great thing to actually uh, have a home. And the obsession of my mind in building it is another story. But, <laughs> but finally it's built. And I move in. And the first month that I moved in, uh, Sharon, Sharon's side had not yet been finished. So I moved in on my side and I did a month self-retreat. So I'm sitting in the house and I'm doing this self-retreat and I have this massive mind attack. And I'm feeling really very uncomfortable about being in this very nice and beautiful home. And my mind's really attacked. This is not right. You know, I shouldn't be living here. And I know what I'll do. I'll move out. I'll move into a hut in the woods. I'll give it to the staff. And my mind was just playing out all of these ways of trying to get out of this feeling of discomfort that, that was attacking me. So again, after, after being with this, for some time my mind really spinning out on this, I looked a little more closely and I said, well, what is going on here? You know, what is this feeling that's so uncomfortable? And I realized that at that time I was actually embarrassed. I was embarrassed to be living in it. But the embarrassment was so uncomfortable as a feeling, I didn't want to, I didn't want to just open and acknowledge Oh yeah, that's the feeling that's present. So I was prepared to move out into the woods, into a hut. Well, I got over that. <laughs> and I realized quite happily that it's much simpler to feel embarrassment for a little bit. <laughs> And to just let that come and go and open to the feeling and let that wash through than to do all the things my mind was thinking of doing. But it was really a good lesson for me in just how, because we don't want to feel certain things, we try to protect ourselves from it. Now, how much of what we do in our lives is an effort not to feel bored or lonely or fearful or whatever. Because we don't want to feel these feelings, so we start living very defensively, as if we can protect ourselves from these feelings coming. It's not a very easy or happy way to live. 
Pascal, the, the French philosopher, he wrote once, most of the world's problems could be solved if people learned to sit quietly in a room. And it's really quite good. You know, when you think of people who are not familiar with retreat, who've never been on retreat before, the greatest fear, I think, is of boredom. Well, if I'm going to be someplace for 10 days or six weeks or three months, which is unthinkable, you know, and not speaking and just sitting, there is so much fear of, of the boredom that's going to come. Little do they know. <laughs> but we need to find that out for ourselves. We, we need to learn how to sit quietly in a room and to see and to face and to be with the whole range of emotions, even the ones that are very painful or unpleasant to be with. Can we open? Can we let them through? We can draw on different strengths to help us open to painful emotions. One of the strengths we can draw on is compassion. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote something very beautiful about this in his usual way. He was talking in this situation about anger, but it really refers to any of these afflictive emotions. He wrote, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. Anger is like a closed flower in the morning. As the sun shines on the flower, the flower will bloom because the sunlight penetrates deeply into the flower. Mindfulness is like that. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. Very nice image of how we can open to a difficult emotion, a painful emotion, with compassion, with mindfulness, just like the sun opens a flower. So that's one approach, or one strength we can call on. Another strength we can call on which is related to compassion is courage. I had a strong experience of this in this last self-retreat I did last spring. It was three months. And about halfway into the retreat, some very difficult things started happening. It felt like my body, in the most fundamental way was reorganizing itself fundamentally and it just there was tremendous uh, discomfort and unease and vulnerability um, and in that process which was very intense 
somehow it touched or it opened up this very deep place of anguish as I was going through this. And it felt like for weeks at a time I was exploring the meaning of the word anguish as all this was happening. This was quite unexpected. At a certain point in this process, and it kept to use a colloquialism, getting worse. At a certain point, I just felt like I hit rock bottom. I really did not know how I was going to be able to be with what was happening. It felt too much. And just at that point where it reached rock bottom, you know, in terms of anguish, in terms of despair, about what was going on, somehow the word courage came into my mind. And it was amazing. Just as that word appeared, and it came intuitively, it came by itself, somehow it connected with the heart energy which is courage. And I could feel in the very moment of that word appearing, all of a sudden, I could feel this energy streaming through my heart. And I could feel the heart strength growing greater and greater and greater. And it was amazing to me because what a moment before had been impossible to be with, so I thought. Just in that moment of opening to that energy, to that heart energy of courage, it really was all fine. It was okay just as it was. It was quite transformative, that moment, to see that possibility. Each of us might approach this from a different angle. So it's not that the notion of courage will necessarily do the same thing for each one of us, but it might be compassion, it might be courage, it might be surrender. It's to realize that we have tremendous resources within us which allow us to be with and open to and accept whatever it is that's arising. And in some way our practice is precisely about bringing us to the edge. It brings us to the edge of what we think we can be with and then it asks us, can we open to this? Can we surrender to this? Can we have courage for this? It's also true that sometimes we need to open slowly. Because sometimes feelings can be overwhelming. At a particular time we may not have the strength to actually be with them. And so we need to recognize when that's happening and back off. And it's okay to back off so that we actually regain the strength to open and be accepting. And that takes a real delicacy of judgment. So 
So we don't accept or recognize what's there because at times we're misperceiving, at times we're not seeing the full constellation of what's there. We don't accept sometimes because emotions are too painful and we don't want to open, we don't want to be with the discomfort or dis-ease of them. Sometimes we don't accept certain emotions because they don't fit our idea of being a spiritual person or being a good yogi. Good meditators aren't greedy. Good meditators don't lie. Good meditators never get angry. Therefore, greed or dishonesty or anger can't be arising. And we get into this, and it's really just massive self-delusion coming out of some image we have or are trying to hold, or an image we create of what a good yogi or a spiritual person means. It's very helpful to let go of any such notion and really to be with what actually is arising in our experience. One sign of non-acceptance, and this is a very good feedback, is a sense of struggle. If you're sitting, if you're walking, if you're going through the day and you feel like you're, you're in a state of struggle, that is a very useful feedback or signal, well, something is probably going on that we're not open to, that we're not willing to be with. Because if we actually were willing to be with it, we wouldn't be struggling. So instead of just getting lost in the dukkha, the suffering of the struggle, let it be the instigation of an investigation. When you're struggling, step back and see what's going on here. Is there some state in the body, some state in the mind? Is there some feeling, some emotion, some afflictive mind state? that I'm not seeing, that I'm not recognizing. It's from this place of acceptance and clear recognition, this is the foundation from which we can actually bring some wisdom to the world of our emotions. We need to distinguish here different levels. From an absolute perspective, every arising experience and all mind states, all emotions, are equally empty. They're just arising and passing and there's nothing we have to do about any of them. That's from the absolute perspective. But as you undoubtedly have noticed, we're not always living from that space. But a good part of the time, we're living from what we could call the relative level, where to some extent or other, we are caught, we are identified with what's going on. And on that level, it's tremendously important to discriminate between those mind states that are skillful and those mind states that are unskillful. 
And here there's a very pragmatic definition of skill and unskill, or wholesome and unwholesome. And it's simply those mind states which lead to suffering for ourselves and others are considered unskillful. Those mind states which lead to happiness for ourselves or others are skillful or wholesome. This wise discrimination, there's a new current phrase out, which I think is very apt, and actually a friend of ours has a best-selling book on it. It's called Emotional Intelligence. And it's a wonderful idea that we can actually bring wisdom, we can bring intelligence to the world of emotion. We can begin to discriminate between skillful and unskillful. But this wise discrimination is an extremely delicate matter because it's a very easy step from the acknowledgement, yes, this is an unskillful mind state, to I'm an unskillful person. And that step is not helpful. It's very easy to take the step from understanding this mind state is unwholesome, it leads to suffering when I'm caught in it, when I'm lost in it. It's a very easy step from that to saying it's wrong that this state is arising. This is not what emotional intelligence is about. It simply leads to less acceptance, more self-judgment, more afflictive emotions. We just get caught in that cycle in an even stronger way. Now we've all been conditioned emotionally and psychologically in different ways. And in the Buddhist psychology, and some of the others may have mentioned this uh, a bit, now there are different psychological types where either greed predominates or hatred predominates or delusion predominates. And in some way we have a lot of fun among ourselves sort of acknowledging the type that we are. There's a danger, a bit of a danger, in getting really identified with that, but it actually can be helpful to depersonalize it all. So that we're not claiming it as I or self, but we just say, yes, this is the conditioning of the mind. The pattern of the mind is that it tends to greed, or it tends to anger, or it tends to delusion. And each one is characterized in different ways, and the Buddha said some interesting things about this. He said, hatred as a quality of mind, is more dangerous, but it's easier to uproot. And that greed as a quality of mind is less dangerous, less harmful, but harder to uproot. And so it's just taking these as impersonal conditionings of the mind, it becomes interesting to explore each of their nature. The critical understanding with all of this is that it's all workable. These are just conditioned mind states. 
which are arising, and we can learn to understand them and to be free in them. Why is it important to bring this wise discrimination of what's skillful and what's unskillful into our practice? Why do that? It's important not as a way of judging ourselves. It's important so that we can see and understand which states are worth cultivating, which states are onward leading, which states lead to happiness, and which states are worth abandoning, which states do we want to let go of because they lead to suffering. If we don't exercise this wisdom, it's very easy to stay lost in patterns of our conditioning that cause us suffering throughout our whole lives. I think this understanding is very important for us. And I had a, I had a situation which illustrated it to me. Quite a number of years ago, I was invited to teach a metta retreat at a Trappist monastery in Snowmass, Colorado, which was kind of an unusual circumstance that they would invite somebody from the Buddhist tradition to be teaching there, but very open, open-minded uh, group of people. And just before I got there, they had had some workshop um, and from what they said, the, the gist of it was that they learned to honor their anger. And when they were telling me about this, I just, I just didn't sit quite right. You know, honor anger. But as I reflected on it and what might possibly have been meant, it's not about honoring anger. This, I'll, I'll just <laughs> read some, some Buddhist words, on the, words from the Buddha. He said, Anger with its poisoned source and fevered climax, murderously sweet. <laughs> I think we all have that sense that something is, it is. <laughs> but we often don't see its source. You know, the source... Uh, of some kind of hatred within ourselves. So it's not so much honoring the anger, it's honoring the truth that anger has arisen. And this is a very different stance. This is not about judgment, it's not about denial, it's not about suppression. We actually want to open, we want to honor the truth of whatever state is there, to see it clearly, to bring some discriminating wisdom. Is this worth cultivating? Is it not? Does it lead to suffering? Does it lead to freedom? It's this discrimination which actually brings a moral dimension into psychology, which is often very lacking in the Western mode of psychology. There's not as far as I know, particularly a moral framework in which it's all held. 
This is precisely what the Buddha did 2,500 years ago. And it's what we need to do in our own understanding. It's especially important when we see that many of these mind states and emotions are the motivations for action. If we're not able to determine, is this motivation a good one or not a good one? Then we simply are acting out all those patterns of conditioning. Some distinctions are very obvious. I think that most of us would agree hatred is a source of suffering for ourselves, for others. That love is a source of happiness for ourselves or others. This is not hard to say. Same with generosity or greed or wisdom and delusion. But there are other states where we often take what is unwholesome to be wholesome because we're not seeing the subtlety of distinction. A few examples. For many people, there is a confusion between love and attachment. And we see that in ourselves, in our relationships, the relationships of others, very often these two feelings are intertwined and perhaps sometimes even taken to be synonymous. If we love someone, it means we're attached to them. When we look more carefully, we see that they are two actually opposing states. Because attachment is a holding on, and love is an offering. When we really look energetically at the nature of these feelings, we see their difference. It's very helpful in our lives to be able to make this discrimination. The difference between guilt and remorse. Now, something We do something that's unskillful. We remember something that we did that was unwholesome. A very common response is one of guilt. Guilt is not a wholesome mind state. It's unskillful. Why? Because it's reinforcing the sense of self. It's reinforcing the I in a negative way. What is the nature of guilt? I'm so bad for having done this. It's centered around, it's fixated on the notion of I. Remorse, or wise remorse, is exactly the opposite. It's understanding that, yes, I did something unskillful, this was unwholesome, we see it, we take responsibility for it, we open to it, but there's an attitude of forgiveness, of inner forgiveness, of seeing the impermanence and allowing it to pass through. They're very different. Guilt is unskillful, wise remorse is wholesome. It helps us, it helps us be free if we can make this discrimination, make this distinction. The difference between indifference and equanimity. These are two mind states that are, that are close. They look alike, but they're completely different. Indifference is not caring. Indifference is pulling back from experience and not caring what's going on. 
equanimity is total involvement with what's happening with impartiality. So a lot of our practice, the practice of freedom, is beginning to examine and investigate these subtleties of emotion, these subtleties of mind states, with a wise discrimination. There's one other pair that I'd like to mention, which is not usually linked together, but I think that it's particularly appropriate in yogi land to understand this difference. And that is the confusion that sometimes arises between compassion and sloth. Now you might ask, well, what's the connection between compassion and slothfulness? They, they don't even seem in the same family. Oh, I'm so tired. I better take care of myself. <laughs> let, let me be good to myself. I'll go take a nap. Yeah, and we're feeling all this compassion for ourselves because we're really taking care of ourselves and we're nurturing ourselves. And, and we might be. I'm not saying it's impossible that it's compassion. But there's a good chance that it's not compassion at all. <laughs> it's a good chance that it's the working of sloth in its particular manifestation, not particularly of sleepiness, but of retreating from difficulties. And that's an aspect of sloth and torpor which I found very helpful to recognize. Now that it doesn't only mean drowsiness, it means the retreating, the withdrawing nature of mind in the face of difficulty. Sometimes we could mistake that for compassion. And to reiterate, sometimes it might be compassion. Sometimes the compassionate thing to do would be to take rest. So I'm not saying that's not the case, but we want to look carefully, not to assume that is so. So we begin to see with greater care this possible distinction. So we talked about acceptance and clear recognition of what's present. Talked about with the basis of that acceptance and recognition, learning to see clearly what is skillful, what is unskillful. That is what leads to more suffering, what leads to more happiness or peace. The next step in working with afflictive emotions is the most difficult. And it's also the most liberating. And that is learning how, at the same time that we open to them, and that we feel them, at the same time, that we don't identify with them. It's this ability to be with emotions, to feel them, and not to identify with them, which makes possible the transformation of any mind state, any experience, any afflictive emotion arising, to transform it into wisdom. This understanding of how we can be with something without identifying. What does it mean to say not to identify with an emotion? 
Our usual mode of relationship is to claim these feelings as being I, as being mine. I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm excited. We personalize the emotion as if there's someone to whom it belongs. The great liberating force of practice is to see that this identification, this adding of the I to what's happening is extra. It's not in the feeling itself. It's not contained within the emotion. It's something we are adding to it. Notice carefully at those times when there is a strong emotion and you feel that sense of identification, the sense of I in it, I'm feeling this way, I'm feeling that way, notice, if you can, the sense of contraction, of limitation that is present when there's that identification. It's difficult to see the possibility of not identifying because emotions are the aspect of our experience which we most personalize, we most take to be ourselves. So this is a radically different way of being with them. How can we decondition this habit? One way is to see the conditioned nature of emotions. You know, all of these mind states are arising when certain conditions are present. They're arising out of those conditions. A large part of what conditions emotions are thoughts. Begin to notice how a particular thought in the mind will trigger a whole emotional reaction. When we're mindful of that thought, we see the thought come and go, very often the whole story does not follow. What also conditions particular emotions is our level of understanding. Because the same situation can cause very different responses in different people. One of my favorite stories is that of the hermit monk Ryokan, a Japanese lived at the end of the 18th century. Wonderful hermit monk, you know, wrote many poems and many stories of his wandering around the mountains. Very poor, he lived in this little hut in the woods. <laughs> One day he came back and he saw that a thief had come and stolen everything he had, which was not much. You know, he came back to an empty hut. So what did Ryokan do? He wrote this haiku. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. <laughs> now just imagine you going back after the retreat to your home. Everything's gone, cleaned out. Oh, the moon at the window. <laughs> the thief <left>. Probably not. <laughs> Same experience, very different response, very different reaction. Why? 
because of different levels of understanding. So we begin to see that emotions are not who we are. They're not I, they're not self, they don't belong to anybody. Because of a certain set of conditions, certain mind states arise. The conditions change, the mind states change. Understanding the conditional and impermanent nature of mind states helps free us from identification with them. A way that I found very helpful when I was caught, and this, this was earlier on in my practice, there were times when I would just be in these long, long periods of kind of depression and just difficult, down, low states. And I remember thinking to myself, in six months from now, I'm not going to even remember that this arose. It's like I enlarged the time perspective. Not only six months, four months, three months, a week from now, I'm not going to even remember that this happened. And by enlarging that time perspective, it reminded me of the impermanence of it, that it wasn't who I am, and that helped the disidentification process so that it all washed through more easily. This is from uh, the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sayings of the Buddha. Very helpful reflection. So indeed, these states, not having been, come into being. Having been, they vanish. Regarding these states, abide unattracted, unrepelled, independent, non-attached, free, not identified with a mind free of barriers. Such a clear statement about the nature of these emotions and particularly the afflictive ones. We don't need to get caught, we don't need to be identified with them. These states not having been come into being, having been they vanish. Can we abide, unattracted, unrepelled, not identified, with a mind free of barriers? We begin to see these emotions not as being who we are, not as being I, as being self, but simply arising when the conditions are there, changing when the conditions change. The emotions are empty of any, they're empty of any substantial nature, empty of self. But it's also not enough just to know this intellectually. Now as we're being consumed by some feeling, oh, it's empty. (coughs) That usually doesn't work, and it it could actually work just to kind of distance ourselves, which is very different than not identifying. Just one last little emotion story. 
This again happened some years ago with, with another friend who did something and it felt like just this big betrayal. And betrayal is a hard feeling. It's a very hard feeling. It really felt like there was a knife in my heart. You know, but this was somebody who, who had been a friend <laughs> up until that point. And so I'm, I'm working with this and you know, trying to get accepting and seeing its emptiness, but it still felt like the knife. But then I realized, and I was going through the whole situation and what they did and my reaction and all that. But at a certain point I began looking at it from this perspective. That for the knife to hurt, it needed some place to land. And if there was no place for it to land, it wouldn't hurt. It would just go right through. And so I changed my whole way of looking to investigating, okay, where am I getting caught? Where am I getting identified? What am I holding on to? Now, and that kind of investigation really began to loosen the grip of that emotion began to actualize the understanding that it was empty of self, empty of substance. So it's a process not only of you know, grasping this with our concepts, it's really a question of applying it in the moment. Non-identification with emotions should not be confused with not feeling them. Because sometimes people misuse this understanding. Oh, I'm not identified. You know, and all of these strong emotions are going on, and it's not a true non-identification. It's like stepping back and not feeling. Because the true understanding of selflessness comes from openness of heart from openness of mind. Now all these mind states and emotions are like clouds in the sky. There's no roots, no home. Can we liberate all of these mind states, all of these afflictive emotions, and let them all arise and pass through the open sky of our heart and mind. This is what our practice is about. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.